It's The Bill Murphy Show, featuring the best in the business and people from all walks of life. Available by subscription for free on iTunes and at BillMurphyShow.com. Brought to you by... An underwriting from Millennium Laser Eye Centers, a local partner and national institution worth the trip from anywhere to beautiful Fort Lauderdale, Florida for your LASIK procedure from Dr. Corey Lesnar and his staff. Visit them at HaveLASIK.com. Millennium Laser Eye Centers. You won't believe your eyes. Here's your host, Bill Murphy. With another episode for this September 30th, 2016, Season 2, Episode 18. I do believe managing to squeeze some in, a lot of other stuff going on, so much to catch up with and talk to you about and try to manage to squeeze in some shows now and then. So again, we bring you another great encore. We'll tell you more about that in a little bit, but uh, we want to re- recap the Button South Class Reunion 5 that was this past weekend at Revolution Live. Pretty great time had by all and some amazing performances both nights that I thought uh, deserved some noting here in this uh, episode. So some personal standouts for me. Stranger on Friday night, actually the Greg Billings band, to be fair. They sounded really great. And Greg's voice is killer. Still rocking the West Coast of Florida, those guys. Really cool to hear Race for the first time in 25 years, Saturday night. And Gypsy Queen was an emotional, special show. Paula looks and sounds amazing. I was thrilled to be there to see that one. All going down at the uh, Revolution Live in Fort Lauderdale this past weekend. A uh, coming together of sorts from folks from the old school. Thanks and congrats to uh, everyone for coming out and putting it all together. Darlene, Michael, Adrian, Russ, Keith, everyone else, you know who you are. It's a huge labor of love that results in a, a lot of love in the room. So thanks, you guys. Now on to today's show in a continuing effort to bring back some of the show's best episodes for the new listeners and for those of you who missed it first time around. Mitch Ryder of Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels from 2011 during a, a Wheels summer tour. 2011 was a great year for this show, and now that it is five years later, and you may not even known about the show back then, and uh, even if you did, you might have missed this, so it's worth putting out again. Edited, of course, to be more up-to-date. You know, we uh, caught up with everything that Mitch has been doing ever since this interview, and I'll recap that at the end. I've got a whole bunch of stuff to tell you about to get you up to date in sort of our where are they now uh, portion of the show at the end of these encores. Mitch Ryder's one of those humble guys that realizes and appreciates everything that went down with his band success. Had to do a lot with uh, right place, right time, right studio, right day. You know, his sincerity comes through in everything he says. I had a fortunate chance to meet him through my brother Steve, who toured with Mitch several times. We talked about um, some of those right time, right song moments. And we even listened to a couple, one recorded way back then and one recorded pretty recently. So we get a good contrast for Mitch Ryder, one of the great voices in classic rock and roll history. And as we pick it up in this um Part of our phone conversation, Mitch is catching us up with uh, Jim McCarty and the other guys in um, in the wheels. Well, as best as he could, and this is from 2011, so we'll uh, update you even more at the other end of the show. It's Mitch Ryder from July of 2011. Uh, two of them are active, and they have their own groups. Uh, uh, Jim McCarty is going out with Cactus again, if you remember Cactus. Can't say I do. Of course, I remember Jim, but I don't remember Cactus in particular, and I probably yeah. should. Atlantic Records. It was a fairly big deal uh, on the East Coast and like in the New York area. And uh, I don't really know that much of their history, but I do know that uh, beyond myself, he's probably been the most active uh, member of that former group. Third would be the drummer, uh, Johnny B. He's been very active. 
after the breakup, everybody, uh, generally speaking, was able to continue to find employment and work and uh, create things. And that's kind of exciting for the fans uh, that were fans of you that many years ago and may have, for one reason or or another, lost track of what those guys are doing. So someone who's listening might be able to find you or one of those other guys in a town near them and didn't even realize that you guys were still playing this much. That's just uh, amazing. So the cats that you're working with today, um, talk a little bit about those guys because I'm sure they deserve it. And... uh, and uh, how's that working out? People adapting to, you know... Well, what, what, what happened was uh, there was a little bit of dissension uh, between me and the two remaining members of the uh, Detroit Wheels. But the brand name, which is, is really important, uh, was sitting out there in cyberspace and nobody had grabbed it. Uh, frankly, I was surprised that they wouldn't have grabbed it, either one of them, uh, the Detroit Wheels part of it. But... I said, it's got to be protected, so I bought it and and got the copyright for it. Wow. And then there was dissension from them saying, how can you call the people that are working with you Detroit Wheels? And uh, I'm saying, well, if you want the name to work as the Detroit Wheels, why didn't you grab it? And secondly, I'll be glad to give it to you if you're going to use it, which they they declined to do. And not to cut you off, but doesn't this sometimes result in strangers and people that have nothing to do with the band buying up such rights and putting sure. out, you know, an imposter band? It happens all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, but it would be hard to do that. You you can do that if if it's a name of a group. You get away with a lot easier than you can with a singular identity. Such I see. As Mitch Ryder. Of course. But, however, having said that, there is a Mitch Ryder, a wrestler from Ohio. Uh-oh. There's also a Mitch Ryder who's a... Uh, porn king out in L.A. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, they're out there. And you get mistaken for that guy once in a while? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, not, not for the wrestler either. So how did the rest of this evolve that the the other band, the, the other guys in the band and you, after you wrestled that name away from them, then what happened? And, well, uh, I didn't wrestle it away from them. I just took it out of cyberspace. They, gotcha. They didn't, they didn't have it. They didn't, I didn't steal anything from them. Uh, the, the curious part to me is that when you go back and look at the old promo pictures, uh, two of our boys got drafted right after we had our first hit record. Wow. And so we, we replaced, we immediately were putting in new wheels before the career had even run its course. So I don't understand what all the fuss is about, about authentic Detroit wheels and non-authentic Detroit wheels, because we put out promo pictures uh, uh, with the substitute wheels in there and they were called Detroit wheels and neither of the two original that were bitching were bitching back then I got you so if they had a bitch with it why weren't they saying something back then right you know so anyway that's that's minor because the, the truth of the matter is uh, Jimmy and I just played together two days ago uh, at the concert of colors here in Detroit boy that's got to be something yeah it, it was it was fun uh, we uh there isn't that much animosity between us. There's just particular little things, and none of that, none of the differences between us would have come out in our favor anyway, given the disposition of our producer, Bob Crew, because he had it in his mind all along that he was going to make Mitch Ryder into a Las Vegas a lounge singer. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, yeah, that was absolutely the wrong way to go. And, uh, you know, I have a book coming out. The book company is called Cool Titles. They're out of Beverly Hills. 
and it'll be released in December, and there'll be a cross-promotion with a new CD that I uh, did, which was produced by Don Was, who, of course, is a Grammy Award-winning. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, so that will all happen in December. I'll be coming to New York to do the TV shows in L.A., and uh, we're putting a big push on it. We're hiring a very expensive publicist out of New York, and we're going to try for some visibility. Wow, and uh, talking about playing with Don Was is something we might be able to do later, but I guess we were getting to the guys that you're playing with now. Who is it, and what's the uh, okay. what's that so sound right now, like today with the, with the with the cats that you're playing with today? How do how do the well, songs sound? You know, they they sound fantastic because I, I got young uh, musicians, but skilled, right? Skilled professionals. So the energy level. Uh, except I have to say one thing, uh, and I'm not I'm not trying to you know stroke you or anything. But your brother is one of the best drummers I've ever worked with. You know, I was going to actually, life. I was going to get to get to that and ask you your opinion because I, to to give the background to some of the listeners, my younger brothers played with you on a, a couple of different um, opportunities on tour. On one of the summer tours, I'm not sure was it the uh, was it the yeah, hippie, hippie fest, fest tour, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's just amazing high praise coming from you with the amount of drummers that you have played with. That's got to be high praise to, to talk about Steve Murphy like that. So do tell a little bit more about that. Well, it's it's the highest praise I can give. And, and he's uh, totally committed. He's very knowledgeable about his drums. And he can play almost anything you want to throw his way. Now, uh, okay. His energy level is unbelievable. And he's inventive as he goes. So, you, you know, I he stays enough in the formation to make any song sound the way it's supposed to sound, but he, he's constantly inventing little, little things that only another musician would notice and give credence to. But they all in all add up to making it sound just like a wonderful, wonderful set of drums. Well, that's crazy. I was going to actually find... I mean, I go back to witnessing Gene Krupa. I played with Gene Krupa. That's exactly what I mean. And I was going to try to find a way to ask you um, that question in that much detail, but you you pretty much did it for me. I wanted to look at how a drummer of today like Steve, not that he's, you know, one of the youngest guys out there, but he is a lot younger than your generation, um, how they translate the style that was the way the songs were played back then and do it, you know, kind of you run the risk of these guys doing it their own own way and straying away from what the root of the groove is, you know? No, I would I, w- I would look at the way Steve does it as and not only nailing the way the original was done, but then let's say he, he, he's cooking something and then he adds the spices. Right. You know, and those are all his. So you never <laughs> have to worry about somebody saying, boy, that didn't sound like the record at all. Right. Because it sounds like 100% like the record plus. Wow, that's great. Like a, it sounds like a very fresh version of the record. And then, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm judging your brother against it. I also had the opportunity to sing with Buddy Rich uh, one time. So, uh, I mean, I've seen some amazing drummers in my life. And, uh, you know, Steve is, wow. Well, there you go. Big plug for Steve. And he actually is on the road right now with the Happy Together Tour and getting ready to do more Hippie Fest tours this summer. So there you go, Steve. There's a plug for you. And um, you can go check out some great versions of some other Legends songs out there on this one. How come we're not uh, seeing you on this year's Hippie Fest tour? Is that a political thing you don't want to get into? Uh, no, <laughs> I've been on three of them, so I can't complain. Right, um, right. I think I think the uh, audiences expect something different uh, every year. And I right. think they should probably get that, you know. Um, but we were talking about my schedule, right, right, and, right. And to be really um, candid about it, it has gone down. 
Uh, now, there was a time, I think uh, I had done 237 dates or something unusual like that in one year. It, it was like nonstop work. It was at the height of my career. Mm. And I, I, I was working so much, I went into, uh, I got exhausted and had to quit because of fatigue. Um, our average a year now is about 74, 75 dates. Okay, so that's a big difference, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and half of those, uh, it must be noted, are European dates. Okay. And Another act that we could talk about, the, the difference between the taste of music from Europeans and Americans. So that's a whole other conversation that we could have, you know? Yeah, well, it, it's really simple to boil down. Uh, the reason I have a following over there, and uh, it continues to be a parallel career, is the fact that they are able to access a new product almost on a yearly basis. My output over there has been tremendous. Wow. Uh, and so putting out a new CD uh, almost every year and then going on tour every year without stop since 1978, sometimes twice a year, uh, one time, three times a year. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a whole different world. And, and I, I have to be honest, they don't know, and it had no impact on them on the continent. In, in England, it's it's a it's something to be dealt with, but on the continent, they don't know or care about Jenny Take a Ride or Devil with a Blue Dress On or huh. Socket to Me or any of those. Interesting. They're basing their relationship with me on the output that I've given them since I began recording over there. Wow, and how much more satisfying has that got to be for you? You know, get they get more into your personal kind of you know. Thing. Well, I'll tell you what it, what it does. It, it, first of all, it allows me to, I have a bigger, larger catalog to draw upon for the shows. Right. So I end up doing two and a half hour shows over there with no intermission, whereas over here I'm doing 75 and pushing it when I'm doing 90. Wow. So there's the difference, you know, because you're limited. I'm only limited, I'm limited by what the public will accept as being familiar. You can do all the original songs you want to all day long. But unless you got a major push going behind those songs, the people are basically coming to see to hear the old hits from the sixties. Right. right, right, in right. In America, uh, in Europe, it's just the opposite. They're coming to see the newest stuff. So there's a lot of bands you can say that about, and that would probably explain a lot of your. You're telling me there's actual parts of your library that's only available in Europe, and you didn't even bother releasing American versions. No, we haven't yet. Oh wow! I mean, you you can do this as imports, but we've made sure. no, uh, we've done no publicity push on it, and uh, we're not really reaching for that because uh, I think, in my mind, if I'm going to come out in America, uh, then I, I want it to be on an American label uh, that would be willing to reintroduce that whole catalog to America, and, and people would get a picture of what the last forty eight years have been. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of sad that they don't do more of that, and it it just fuels that phenomena that I like to talk about every once in a while. And I mean, I know it's hard to really explain in a nutshell why it happens, but in is it is it a simple case of the grass is always greener? Because you wonder about such American-born and American-bred acts being so popular overseas. And I guess it does happen vice versa, but I think, you know, I, I mean, is it much more than the grass is always greener? Why does you, the Europeans appreciate some of the deeper tracks of American acts than we do? I, I do believe that my research has, has shown it to be that they have a, a different view, a cult, different cultural view of of their uh, their history, uh -huh. the way 
the way they look at history. And I, I really don't know uh, how much the defeats and the wars had to do with that in Germany, which is where I'm based out of. Um, we've never had to live as a defeated country. So this uh, this fascination with all things American, you know, could be explained by something as simple as that. We were the conquering heroes, and so we must have had the best. And so they, you know, or it could be, which I hope it is, just the pure magic of rock and roll. Yeah. You know, and I think it's it's like a bug and it'll get you no matter it's it, it's it has no uh, borderline. Wow, you know, these are words that I hope you've got those in print in a book <laughs> planned somewhere because that's a really good way of looking at it. Two very fascinating outlooks at it, and I think you're right. I mean, there is something to be said about how American rock and roll is and therefore appreciated all over the world. Yeah, it is. It's really an ambassador of goodwill. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. And on that note, I want to kind of dissect the Detroit sound. So just for the listener's sake, um, let's take a, like a deep look as um, you are called one of the founders of the sound of Detroit. And I want to talk about how the ambassadors that have come since have represented the area and if it's a fair representation. So talk a little bit about Devil with the Blue Dress. Of course, the song you're most noted about. And I hope you're not rolling your eyes right now at the, at the prospect of me playing it because I really want you to try to talk about the days leading up to going in and recording this song and the buzz, if there was any, about how successful this was going to be for you. I can do that. Did you want me to start now? Yeah, go right ahead. I, I want to hear it explained right from the horse's mouth. The, uh, the song is a medley. And uh, Bob Crew came to us, meaning the band, and asked us if we knew of any cool songs that would uh, we could possibly put into a medley. Well, there was this version of a song on the Soul label, which is a subsidiary of Motown in Detroit, and it was written by Shorty Long, and it didn't sell anything. It didn't even sell well in Detroit. But it was a slinky, snaky sort of R&B, uh, just... It was a filthy-sounding song, and, and we loved it. <laughs> and he said, well, let me hear it. But when we, uh, you know, turned the uh, ignition on, our engine was running a lot faster than Shorty's, and uh, the thing just took off like a rocket. We added all that up-tempo and the energy, and the and it was a one-take deal. Uh, the vocal was a one-take deal. I did do a second vocal for a safety, but it, we kept the very first take, and that was the... Uh, it was simple. It really wasn't a lot of preparation involved. The only thing that stands out in my mind, uh, other than talking about the song the day before we recorded it, recording it the next day, was the sense in the studio that we had created a really, really good song. Now, that that did permeate everybody that was a witness to it and was in the studio at the time it was recorded. It just felt hot. It really felt like a, a hit record. Come, wear the wig hat and change to match. Got a high heel shoes 
Devil with the Blue Dress, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Mitch Ryder describing that song to you. And I know, I know you weren't intending to make a pun when you said that the engine was revving a little bit higher when you guys did that. But it's very, very obvious. And, you know, it's so satisfying to actually hear someone admit that they knew they were connecting to a vibe that was going to be big. You guys knew it as soon as you listened to the playback the first time. That's just fascinating. Yeah. No, we, we did. That's the only one we knew it on, too. I mean, the other hits, we didn't know. <laughs> we you know, it's so it's amazing. So many artists say that I had no idea. They couldn't tell the difference from one single to the other. We're having trouble deciding what the single's going to be on the new record. But then you know, sometimes it just it is what it is. Now that sound, that song, that three minutes and fifteen seconds in most cases was, you know, kind of became legendary for the area. Sort of chiseled its mark right into the city of Detroit, the whole area of Michigan, which has already had a legendary Motown sound, but now it had a defined rock and roll sound. And your influences are heavily James Brown, heavily Little Richard. I mean, even though you guys were amped up, like it says, it's much higher energy. You know, is it fair to call it Detroit music when you guys were influenced by guys from Georgia and uh, other areas? You know, isn't that an interesting way to look at it, too? Well, if you want to be fair about it, you have to include the influences that affected the musicians as well. That's true. So right. when you put those different chemistries all in one vial, uh, that's when you have Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. My influences affected the singing values uh, enhanced in the record, but the those drum parts, uh, God knows where Johnny B. got those from. Right, you know? right, right. So, But all of those together had to work, and they all did perfectly work that day together. We left uh, feeling very uh, confident with that record. And I think it needs to be noted, uh, in fairness, to just to backtrack a little bit about those people that are going to argue about Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels, that that bass player was not an original Detroit Wheel, okay? Okay. And, uh, and the rhythm player was not an original Detroit Wheel. And the keyboard player never was a Detroit wheel. <laughs> and you're just saying that to be fair so that you realize the facts are the way they are, right? So. Right. I just want to set the record straight uh, <laughs> because people have been giving me a lot of grief about this whole thing about right. Mitch Ryder and the Detroit wheels. And there must have been over 100 of them so far. Wow. Okay. You know, so let, let's, let's keep it uh, historically correct. But I was wondering also when you listen to that, knowing how attached you are to the Detroit sound, uh, the Michigan sound was. Were you guys also playing of a sound that was evident in other bands in your time that we may have otherwise never heard of? No, I don't think so. I think that was solely our creation because of where we came from and how we came up. Wow! Uh, I, I do believe we did influence a lot of other bands, and we were the first self-contained white rock and roll band out of Detroit to huh. make make that bridge between Motown and kind of opened the door for the Stooges and uh, everybody else that followed. Right, it was like Seattle. In the coming months, in the following months, you must have been finding all these other bands, <laughs> you know, adapting that sound right away. The sound and the energy level and right. the creativity. Uh, it was difficult, you know, when Barry Gordy was uh, having huge success with Motown because as a young white rock and roll artist, he wasn't signing. He didn't understand rock and roll to begin with. Uh, he understood rhythm and blues quite well. Interesting, and soul, interesting. Soul music. And right. so I think that made him a little bit afraid to, to take... Jump, right, to jump on the bandwagon, right. But 
he was very happy when I took one of his songs because he did own that uh, Devil with a Blue Dress on, and it sold millions and millions and millions. And so it was for him How about the same that? As, having, as having a white rock and roll artist. <laughs> and that makes the song even more Motown or, and Detroit yeah. music than, than we even knew. Well, he was very happy about it. <laughs> that's fascinating. Okay, so then in the years that followed, all these bands, you know, I was at a, at a Kid Rock concert probably in... Ooh, 99 or 2000 before anybody really knew who he was. And this guy did about a 20-minute medley of all the Detroit acts, the Ted Nugent, a lot of Mitch Ryder. He did some, uh, you know, Grand Funk Railroad and so forth and was representing the area. How have folks like Kid Rock and Ted Nugent and Bob Seger carried on that sound up there? And and are there any similarities? And is it fair, you know, have they done well in your legacy, so to speak? Um, or in yeah, your, but in I your mean, tailwind, I, mean, I guess. These people, these people have uh, created their own personas. Yeah, and, uh, they're they're all equally important and and, and influential. Uh, but the names you mentioned are already pretty much um, historical figures at this point. Right. Uh, for example, uh, on September seventeenth. There's a gig at the uh, Michigan Speedway. It's got like Sheryl Crow and ZZ Top and a, a, a bunch of, a uh, lot of local acts are going to be on it. Wow. Uh, yeah, Jack White is going to be on there with his new group. Oh, okay. Uh, so you have to remember, you know, Kid Rock's been around for a while now. Right. Bob Seger just pretty much retired at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and I don't know what uh, Kid Rock's going to do. Uh, you never know. He's either going to have a hit record or he's going to get into another bar fight with somebody. Uh, <laughs> One week to I the next, no we're idea. not sure. So, you know, I was just wondering if you're proud of the acts that have lived on in the Detroit name, you know, and I guess it's a, it's oh, a yeah. very proud area and everybody that's from there and plays music from there is so proud of it and really flaunts it. You know? Yeah, well, we, we, have, we have to. We, we are not in a media center like uh, New York or L.A. Right. Where, where it's a given that you're a star. Well put. And, uh, if we wanted to compete on a national level, we have to try ten times harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we literally have to. Where a simple win against two media teams would be a simple win. It would be nothing to talk about. We have to like not only beat our opponents by one point. We got to beat them by a hundred points to get the praise that a media team would get for one point. Very, very. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. That was very well put. You know, this a lot of this stuff is um, even more prophetic than uh, you know. It's worth a second listen here to hear some of these words of wisdom that we're getting from you, Mitch. It's a really good outlook and a good introspective look at everything. Now, on that note, since I know I could probably get this out of you, you is there any is there as much of that geographical sort of pride with music anymore? And I think with the advent of of new media and the way everything is so ubiquitous across the country anybody can get their hands on anything anywhere see a video of anybody from any city that has has that geographical aspect kind of disappeared from music and the advent of new media do you think um it, it has changed places it's not the first question that's asked anymore it's the last question okay um yeah it'll get out there and then finally people will say by the way where are you from right and that's when you get your your dues your props for being from detroit in the old days, I, I still open my shows before I sing a note. It's uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mitch Ryder. I'm from Detroit. Very uh, nice. You know, so that's the way it used to be, and now it's just the opposite. The, the tag comes on the end. That's very true. Uh, but you're right. Uh, it, it, it is. Uh, it comes from all places. It comes from Indonesia. It comes from Japan, China. 
It comes from Australia, you know, it, it comes from South America, and it's there in your face immediately because of the technology. Yeah. But sooner or later, uh, people are going to want to know, okay, where is he from? Right. And so that's that's all that's happened. Right. It's not at the top of the checklist like it used to be now. Right. And the other thing is, I'm wondering, like I said, if an up-and-coming kid... Uh, from Columbus, Ohio, some extremely talented musician. Now he's pulling his resources and getting his influences from all over the world as opposed to the the, 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 the rock club down the street where a local sound is happening. So are we losing the sounds that are owned by those areas, the Seattle's, the, uh, the Georgia sounds? You were able to recognize where something was from when you heard it. I guess that element is sort of getting lost in the mix, too, is where I was going, you know? Yeah, well, we're not, we're not losing the sound. We're just increasing the size of the spice rack. It's like Heinz 57, you know. <laughs> now it's Heinz 112. You know, just- again, perfectly put. I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, Mitch Ryder, it's a tr- it's a treat to have you on. In the in the remaining minutes that we have, I want to play another tune. It's another one of your great hits. But the interesting spin on this is that you actually took the opportunity to go in and re-record uh, some of your old hits. Now, this Jenny Take a Ride version that we're going to listen to is from sometime in the '90s, I guess. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And what was the difference? Since this would be a great way to take a look at the the then and now aspect of recording. What was it like to take a song that you had heard in its uh, you know brutal, raw form for so many years and, I don't know, get a chance to clean it up and do it with some newer technology? Um, that was recorded in Nashville. It's kind of like doing the Hippie Fest. You know, the musicians all had to learn the original parts. Right. Uh, so they could make it sound as authentic um, as it could. The reason those records are made, and uh, I'd have to go back and listen to see what shape my voice was in. Well, uh, we're going to hear it here in a second, and you can hear it for yourself. <laughs> I know that today, uh, the gigs I just did this weekend, uh, my voice is better than ever. It sounds just as young and as fresh as ever. I don't know what it sounded like in the 90s there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the big reason artists do that is because they want to be able to license that out to people that are interested in the song. And people that want to license it out, if they go for the original, a lot of times they'll have to pay a lot of money to license it. Whereas if they have a reasonable uh, duplication of it by the original artist and they can license it for less, they'll come and choose the one by the artist. And so it's just a, another way to make money. That's the way something like Jenny Take a Ride could end up on a, a I don't know, on, on a car commercial. Sure. It would be a lot easier for a company to do it with a newer version that you did than an old one. Another great. Right. And be cheaper, too. Another, another good look into the business that uh, you don't normally get to see. Here's the, hold on. the icing. It gets real murky underneath. <laughs> Jenny Take a Ride. Here's the re-recorded version with Mitch Ryder. Well,
Jenny, take a ride from Mitch Ryder on the Bill Murphy Show. The voice sounds fine to me there as we listen to that re-recorded version from the 90s. You know, being a vocalist myself, I can kind of relate to it. Not that I have any right to compare, but I have, you know, I know that after over time, there are some songs that you sing them for a number of years and it sort of gets worn into your biology after a while, right? That the songs sort of automatically come out of you. Yeah, it makes you think it was almost genetic, almost. Right, right. And then you could probably take on a new song that you know on paper isn't really as challenging as one of those and probably have some difficulty with it just because how how automatic these ones come out for you right that happens i'm I'm certain that happens (laughs) (laughs) you did touch upon this a little bit but was it really really rewarding to hear those songs with so much more dynamic range and did you use any of like the new modern computer stuff and do any tricks or did you kind of leave it alone and try to do it as original as you could advances didn't happen uh, during this recording. Okay, um, right. There was nothing really extra special. There was maybe some new microphone standards, and uh, I don't even think they were using Pro Tools. Yeah, and Pro Tools um, would have been in its infancy at the time anyway, so. Yeah, it was, it, it, it's been around a while, but I don't think that's what we were using. And and uh, when I did the latest recording with Don was uh, in Hollywood, uh, we were using a Pro Tools uh, 3.5, I think. Don um, Was is using pro. You know, you'd think Don, when he could get his hands on some analog tape, would do that. But he's also, you know, doing the computer too, huh? Yeah, he, he well, he does it, and he'll do it the other way as well. Right, right. Uh, he's done every, I think, the last ten Rolling Stones records or something. I don't know why those guys keep recording, but anyway. <laughs> At least you I, said it. I didn't have to say it. Well, I'm just thinking about Keith. You know, he's uh, yeah. I don't know how much more you can contribute to the world of guitar. The guy has done every damn lick in the world, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, he's, and he's he's created so many original licks that have been copied by so many people. There's nothing left to prove, right. He's like a god, so, you know, why not throw him in some more Johnny Depp movies? <laughs> Very you know? good. As opposed to Jack White, who still needs to stay with us here. Right, right. right. <laughs> Until he gets beat up and falls out of coconut trees. That's great stuff. So yeah, so you were talking about Don Was, and he's so when he did the Stones records, I don't know if you got into this with Don. He did a mostly analog. You know, those guys kind of stuck with the old way, or did they get into the Pro Tools too? I don't know because he's sworn to some kind of secrecy uh, in his contract with them. He doesn't talk about uh, what goes on in the studio. Excuse me, Don. I didn't Uh, mean to. You know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, However, uh, if you can catch him in a relaxed mood, you can. I see, I see. (laughs) (laughs) I look into the studio with Don Waz. We took a listen to listen to the early recordings, the newer, and got a got an idea of what the bands you're out with sound like now. I think if um, anyone that's a fan of the old stuff that didn't realize you're out there and has now become aware of a tour date and heard you in this interview, they got to be 
excited to go out and hear how this stuff sounds now. And I'm going to miss you later when I see my brother later this summer on the Hippie Fest, but I'm going to have to stop by this gig at Coconut Creek to say hi. Yeah, Stevie's a good guy. I, I really love him. He's, he's, uh, he's a good companion on the road. He, you know, he, he loves conversation. Oh yeah, that must run, that must run in the family. I'm thinking. Well, yeah, I know I haven't spent as much time on tour buses as he has, but he is a, yeah. a tour bus vet and one of the guy one of the guys you can have the most fun with on the road uh, of all of them out there. I would imagine. You know? Yeah. Plus, uh, the thing for me is he, he's always dependable. I, I can always count on that energy behind me. So well, that's good because I only get to see him locally every once in a while. So it's good to get a report card from one of his bosses out on the road. And uh, yeah, but- I'll never be his boss, but you know he's great. He's great. That's that's awesome. Well, he told me we were going to be talking about golf, so we'll have to save that for another. Oh no time. no no! If you have a spare moment, we can talk a little golf, oh, no, my we, friend. I have too much golf. Will, will you I have, have too many golf stories? I mean, I have a great golf stories, and and uh, we, it's, we'll need to do. Uh, I'll agree to do another interview just strictly about golf, if you like. Well, fantastic! I'd love to do that. Well, you can talk about your favorite golfers. Are you still playing these days when you can? Um, I have a little problem with my uh, my uh, drive, my long. Long shots because I have two hip replacements. Wow! Well, those and hip replacements. Yeah, those hip replacements are supposed to make you even stronger than you were before, Mitch. You probably well, hit. No, it's what, if there's something going on, I, I haven't figured it out because when I pivot, it, it 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 screws me up, and I'm 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 like you know I'm not getting a straight shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So we we haven't even played yet, and you're already sandbagging. No, me it's cost me. It's cost <laughs> me another. It's cost me at least one shot every. Uh, Okay, yeah. See, I knew that's where you were going. You wanted more strokes, that's all. Well, no. I, now, I didn't say I was playing uh, over par <laughs> because my short game is excellent. That's awesome. All right, well, you Get promised, back. You promised. so I'm going to hold you to it, an entire golf episode with Mitch Ryder sometime in the future on the Bill Murphy Absolutely. Show. And we still haven't made that happen, but there, you know, there's still time. It could still happen. Making me want to get out and play some golf right now. It might just do that. Mitch Ryder from July of 2011 on the Bill Murphy Show in our great encore uh, presentation. I'm happy to bring that to you. Uh, another one of our proud moments uh, to keep you up to date with what's going on with Mitch. From the latest I could tell on his website, he's got a couple of dates in November, uh, the 25th and 26th in Jackpot, Nevada. Two dates at uh, Cactus Pete's Resort. January, Hernando, Florida, Citrus Hills Country Club. So that's something to keep an eye on, Floridians. Of course, his book came out a short time later. It was actually in the beginning of 2012, along with a new album. The new album was called The Promise in February 2012. And then Devils and Blue Dresses, the book, was released in January 2012. And um, it's available as we speak, anywhere that you would find books. You know, Amazon for one. Earlier this year, I stumbled upon an article um, in June of 2016, the Detroit Free Press Top 100 Detroit Songs. Devil with a Blue Dress on, Good Golly, Miss Molly, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels came in at a disappointing 27th. Personally, I think it's a, it's a top 10 at worst. What do I know? I'm not going to argue with the Detroit Free Press about Detroit music. <laughs> Mitch was part of the Legends of Rock summer tour with Jefferson Starship just this past summer. Mark Farner, Rick Derringer. Uh, seems a few different groups are using that name for uh, tours and projects. So it's a constant not to be confused with situation. So it's one of the few 
Legends of Rock tours that hit uh, in various different forms over the summer. And then uh, just last month in Ann Arbor, Mitch and the Wheels played the long-running Sonic Lunch concert series at Liberty Plaza for the for the last time. And uh, I personally read some reviews that made it sound like a, a special homecoming show for Ann Arbor. So that was uh, quite an event if you were lucky enough to be there to see it. Still bringing it. Apparently at 70-something, Mitch Ryder, we should all be so lucky. And I'm glad to have him back. I'm going to catch back up with him, see what uh, Steve can put me back in touch with him. We will have a golf episode. More episodes, new ones, I promise, coming very soon. Thank you for continuing to download, like, and share in the meantime. Subscribe to the Bill Murphy Show podcast for free at iTunes. You can post comments about today's show, listen to archived episodes, and like the show on Facebook by visiting BillMurphyShow.com. A presentation of Bill Murphy Productions.